Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see each of you here this morning. Can everybody hear me okay? I know we've got some roofing going on back there. Sounds good. Great. I will do my best to project well. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask him for his help because we're about to look to the Bible. And we are desperate for God to come and do things for us that we could never do for ourselves. And he is faithful to show up and minister to us. So let's ask him now in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you needy as we are all the time and needy as we are every time we open your word. We pray that you would come now by your spirit. We pray you would minister to us, that you would give us eyes to see what is true, that you would give us ears to hear it and hearts that would be receptive to it. We pray that as we look to your word, that we would behold your son, Jesus Christ, as he really is. And we pray that in beholding him, that we would trust him, that we would trust nothing else. We pray that in seeing him, that we would be transformed and conformed into his likeness. And we pray that as we see him, that we would be stirred up to love and good works. We pray for you to come and do these things in us now. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we've been, for the last 10, 11 Sundays now, we have been making our way through a, a series of sermons, a series of meditations that we have entitled Encounters with Jesus. We have been looking at various passages from the gospel accounts. Some of these have been parables. Some of them have been discourses where Jesus is just teaching. And then some have been interchanges, discussions, dialogue between Jesus and his audience. We come today to look at John chapter 8 and an interchange between Jesus and his Jewish audience in the temple. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up. You can get ahead of the game here. Open them up to John chapter 8 and verse 48. If you don't have a hard copy of the Bible in front of you, you can download an app on your phone probably right now and be able to follow along with us that way. You'll be helped by being able to look at the text as we look at the text together. Just a, a comment on the context of John chapter 8. Beginning in verse 12 of John 8, Jesus, we read, is teaching in the temple. There are scribes and Pharisees present amongst a larger Jewish audience. In verses 12 to 19 of John 8, Jesus is making the point, stating quite clearly that he is the light of the world and that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In verses 23 through 25, Jesus says to his audience that you are from below, but I am from above. I'm from heaven. You are of this world, but I am not. Unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. In verse 28, Jesus states that when you have lifted me up, and he's talking about his crucifixion, when you have lifted me up on a cross, then you will know that I'm the Christ, that I am he, the promised one. And you'll know then that I don't do things on my own, but rather I speak simply as I have been taught by my father. And he's talking about his father in heaven. Verses 31 and 2, Jesus tells his listeners that if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. If you remain in my word, if you believe my word, if you trust my word, he says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. In verse 33, it's interesting. The Jewish audience responds to Jesus. It says, hey man, we are offspring of Abraham and we've never been slaves. So how is it that you say that we will become free? Jesus says in verse 34 that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Verse 36, however, if the Son, 
the Son of God sets you free, you will be free indeed. He says to his audience in verse 37, I know that you're offspring of Abraham. I know that physically, according to the flesh, you come from Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. You don't believe what I'm saying. Verse 38, Jesus says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, but you do what you have heard from your father. And again, in verse 39, the Jews appeal to Abraham. They answer Jesus and they say, Abraham is our father. And then Jesus responds, if you were Abraham's children spiritually, if you were children of promise, you wouldn't be trying to kill me like you are. In verse 42, Jesus states it quite plainly. If God were your father, you would love me because it is God himself who has sent me. You however, can't bear to hear what I'm saying. That's because you are of your father, the devil. In verse 47, finally, whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason you don't hear them is that you are not of God. Which brings us to John 8 and verse 48. Thank you for bearing with me. It's good to set the context always when we come to God's word. We do bad things with portions of the Bible if we don't understand the context. So I'm going to read now John chapter 8 and verses 48 through 59 for us. And that's what we're going to look at and reflect on in the rest of our time together this morning. Listen now to God's word. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word today and, and every day. So what I want us to do now is to survey this passage together, to walk through it and make sure that we understand the flow of it and what's going on with it. And then I have two reflections that are implications that just kind of flow right out of the passage. And we're going to think on those together after we make our way through the passage. So that's the plan. Let's put our eyes now on verse 48. In verse 48, the Jews say to Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? And that comment is a jab at the circumstances of Jesus's birth. It's a jab at the identity of his father. Remember that Samaritans were in the eyes of Jews 
ethnic and religious half-breeds. And so they are insulting Jesus in a backhanded way. Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and that you have a demon? You're out of your mind. Verses 49 and 50, Jesus responds, I don't have a demon. I honor my father and you dishonor me. In verse 50, he says, I I don't seek my own glory, though. My father seeks my glory, and he is the judge. Verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And this statement really gets the Jewish audience worked up. If anybody keeps my word, he'll never see death. He'll never taste death. Verse 52, let's look at how the audience responds. They say, now we know that you have a demon. We were pretty sure before, but we are certain now. Abraham died, and the prophets died. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And then this in verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Are you greater than Abraham, the one to whom these promises were made by God long ago, the father of All of God's people. Are you greater than him? He died, you know. And the prophets also died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And then Jesus begins to respond in verse 54. He says again, like, I don't seek to glorify myself because that would be a meaningless pursuit. My glory would be nothing if I was trying to glorify myself. It is my father who glorifies me. This is the one, lest you be confused about who the Father is, this is the one of whom you say he is our God. Verse 55, but even though you say that, you don't know him. I know him, and I keep his word. And then this in verse 56. We'll come back to this later. Your father Abraham, you know, the Jews have continued to appeal to Abraham throughout this entire exchange. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he says. And he saw it and was glad. Then in verse 57, the Jews essentially are like, bro, you're not even 50. You're a young man. And you've seen Abraham? Verse 58, Jesus responds, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This statement prompts the Jews to try to Stone Jesus in verse 59. Why is that? Things continue to escalate. Now they're going to try to kill him on the spot. This is because Jesus in verse 58 has just claimed to be God. Many might be familiar with the story of Moses and the burning bush. We read of that in Exodus chapter 3. If you have your Bibles or if you have your app open on your phone, you could even turn there to Exodus chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1 is where we we find this account. I'm going to summarize it for us, and then we're going to look pointedly at verses 13 to 15 for just a moment. Again, we're in Exodus chapter 3. We read there at the beginning of Exodus 3 that God had heard the groaning of his people in Egypt. His people are in bondage in Egypt. They are oppressed. God hears. God knows. He appears to Moses in a burning bush. And in chapter 3 and verse 6, The Lord says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And the Lord 
then tells Moses that he's going to use him to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. Which brings us to verse 13 of Exodus 3. Moses is going to ask God this question. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses to the Lord, what's your name? I am who I am. You tell the people that I am has sent you to them. And then Jesus shows up on the scene saying, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's none other than Yahweh, the Lord. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. As we think about implications of this passage, there are many. But we're going to think about two in a pointed way together for the rest of our time. Implication number one of this passage. I I see this and I get this from verse 50 and verse 54. We're going to look at those verses in a second. Implication one is this. The Father, God the Father, seeks the glory of Jesus. And it is the Father who glorifies him. Say that again. The Father seeks the glory of Jesus, his Son who has taken on flesh, and it is the Father who glorifies him. Look at verse 50. Jesus states there that he does not seek his own glory. There is one, capital O-N-E, who seeks it, and he is the judge. He's talking about his Father. Look at verse 54. He says again, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. So not to bury the lead here, if we want to please and glorify the Father, we will make much of Christ. If we want to please and honor and glorify God the Father, we will make much of God the Son incarnate, whose name is Jesus. To make much of Jesus pleases the Father because that is what the Father himself does. To herald Christ as our Redeemer glorifies the Father because the Father has planned this redemption through the work of his Son since before the world even got started. We care, as God's people, as the redeemed, we care very much about the honor of God. We care very much about the glory of God, that he would be glorified in us and through us. Well, brothers and sisters, friends who are here today, God is glorified very much when we collectively acknowledge and confess our need for Christ. God is glorified and honored and pleased when we come together knowing, confessing, singing, and praying that we are desperate for Christ and only what he can do and has done for us. 
That's why, as many through church history have said, we make it our goal here to extol the mercy and the grace and the power of Jesus to save sinners as much as possible. And we extol that mercy and grace and power of Jesus to save so that we might be satisfied in Christ, so that we might look to Christ and to no other, so that we might be satisfied in Him alone. And friends, we can know, because God has told us so in His Word, that the Father is pleased in that, and that the Father is honored in that, and that He also gets much glory from that. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of whom? To the glory of God the Father. Implication number two. This is from verse 56, and we're going to look at that verse again in just a moment. Implication number two is that Jesus says, in effect, to the Jewish audience, to the Jewish crowd that's listening to him, you are very excited about Abraham. And Abraham was excited and rejoiced about me. You, my my audience, are excited and are claiming and even rejoicing in Abraham. But Abraham rejoiced over me. Throughout John chapter 8, as you maybe absorbed as we were thinking about the context and as I've drawn our attention to these things. Throughout John 8, the Jewish audience keeps talking about Abraham. They keep appealing to him. In verse 33, you can see it. Just survey this with me briefly. In verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved anyone. So how can you say to us that you will become free by believing in you? We're Abraham's offspring, man. Verse 37, Jesus even says there, I know that you're offspring of Abraham physically, yet you seek to kill me because you don't believe what I'm saying. Verse 39, again the Jews say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But then in our text, verses 48 to 59, you see how they keep bringing up Abraham. We know you've got a demon now because Abraham died, man. And you say, if we believe in your word, we'll never taste death. Are you greater, verse 53, than our father Abraham who died? Are you greater than even him? To understand what Jesus says in verse 56, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. You can turn if you you want to. If not, you can listen along. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 3 very briefly together. Galatians chapter 3. It's it's good and valuable, friends, to interpret Scripture with Scripture, to look to other passages of the Bible to help us understand the particular passage that we're looking at. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, we read this, that the gospel was preached to Abraham. The gospel, the good news of redemption and salvation through the promised Messiah was preached to Abraham. Genesis 12 and verse 3 is cited right there. In you shall all the nations, all the peoples be blessed. So we should understand that Genesis 12, 3, that's way, way back at the beginning of the Bible, is a summary of the plan of redemption that God revealed and preached to Abraham. In Galatians 3, 10 to 12, we read that the promise of justification, that is, 
the promise that we will be declared righteous in God's sight does not come through the law. In verses 13 and 14, we see that the salvific blessings of Abraham come to the Gentiles, that meaning people who aren't Jews, through Jesus Christ to be received by faith. And then verse 16 of Galatians 3, very important verse. We see there that the promises of salvation that God made to Abraham were made with Jesus in view. They would be fulfilled and accomplished by Jesus, who was the promised seed of Abraham. Paul writes there, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Verse 18 of Galatians 3, we see there that these promises of salvation and redemption are certain because they are grounded in the faithfulness of God and they're grounded in the ability of Christ to make good on them. In Genesis 15 and verse 6, we are told there that Abraham believed God. Abraham believed the promises of God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is laid out as the pattern for all of redemption and all of redemptive history, excuse me, where sinners would believe the promises of God and be saved, would be declared righteous. Abraham, by faith in the promises of God, in particular, by faith in the promised seed, was counted righteous, just like all of his spiritual children would be. Jesus Again, to the Jewish audience, you are all excited about Abraham, but Abraham rejoiced over me and he was excited about me. The news about me was preached to him and he believed the promises of my father to him that I would accomplish and thereby he is saved. Abraham rejoiced to see my day because I am his righteousness and because I have secured salvation for him and for everyone else who is under God's covenant of grace. Oh, how Abraham needed Christ. And oh, how all of Abraham's children need Christ. So we need Jesus for two massive things. This is not an exhaustive statement about what we need Christ for, but two massive things with respect to God's law where God has revealed his holy standard. He has told us what is good and what is evil. He has told us what he requires. And he has told us that perfect obedience is necessary. He has told us also that anybody who breaks his law will face judgment. And so we desperately need Jesus to free us from the curse of the law. And we desperately need Jesus to fulfill the requirements of the law in order for any of us to be declared righteous in God's sight. We need Jesus to free us from the curse of the law because we have all broken God's commands. A lot of times we think that, well, yeah, maybe I've broken some of them, but I don't know that I've broken them all. That's not what God's word says. God's word is clear that we are guilty of having broken every single one of God's commands, that if we have broken one, we are guilty of breaking the entire law. As we assess scripture and we realize that what God requires in the great commandment and the second that's like unto it, that we would love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. We assess ourselves in our moments of clarity and sanity and realize I've never done that for 30 seconds in my life. 
love God with all my heart or love my neighbor as myself perfectly, let alone have I done that for a lifetime, I've never really kept any of God's commands. And so all human beings deserve judgment. We deserve justice. Justice is a word that indicates that you get what you deserve. So if we are ever going to be saved, if we are ever going to be rescued from the justice that we deserve, we need forgiveness for our sins. We need to be absolved of our sins, no longer held responsible, no longer guilty, which Jesus has accomplished for us. He took our sins upon himself and he took it to the cross. He took our own sins in his own body to the tree. And he made atonement. He made an appropriate and adequate sacrifice once and for all time. We're told in scripture that Christ also has removed our sins from us. To use the language of the psalmist, our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. God, we're told in the prophet Isaiah, that God will blot out our transgressions for his own sake and he will remember our sins no more. It's not because God has amnesia. It's because Christ has dealt with our sin in full. They're no longer credited to our account. They're no longer on us. He took them upon himself. Jesus has taken all of our sins and he's never going to give them back. It's a marvelous thought. It's not as though he takes our sins and we could mess that up somehow and then he's going to say, well, here, take your sin back. Now how it works. He took our sins, he had paid for them once and for all, and he will never give them back. And they never need to be paid for again. But we also need Jesus to fulfill the requirements of God's law because if it were true that to believe in Jesus, to place our faith in him for our salvation, if all that meant was it would be as though we had never sinned. We still are bankrupt of righteousness. We don't have any. God not only requires sinlessness, he requires perfect righteousness to live with him forever. Sometimes you hear people say that to be justified is to be made as though you have never sinned. That's only half true. To be justified is to be made as though you have never sinned, and it is to be counted and declared righteous to the extent that all the righteous deeds that Christ did are counted to you. His record for your record. Blow your mind. It's the greatest news in the world. Not having a righteousness of our own friends, we look to Jesus who provides us with his own righteousness and holiness. He did a lot more than just cancel our debt of sin. He did a lot more than just give us a clean slate. I don't know about you, but if I was given a clean slate, that's good for like a minute. And then I'm, I'm going to mess that thing up. As you sit here this morning and you assess your life honestly and you're mindful of your own sin and you're grieved by your own sin and you think, have I done enough to be saved? The answer to that question is most certainly not. But Jesus has. Jesus has done enough to save you and save me. Praise God for that gospel. Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. Because Abraham, like us, 
was in need of what only Christ could do for him. And so we, along with Abraham, rejoice over Christ. And thinking about all this, about how the, the Jews in our text were, were worked up about being children of Abraham as though he was the point. I can't help but think that similar things happen when the Old Testament is read or taught in many of our churches. I know that for many of us in our experience, you know, the, the Old Testament, we think back to like the, the flannel boards in, high, or in, in Sunday school for those of us who grew up in church, right? Whenever stories from the Old Testament were talked about, they were often turned into a fable, you know, a moral tale that we can glean principles from. Stories in the Old Testament were often told as though those accounts, those people in and of themselves were the point. Take, for example, David and Goliath, one of the most famous stories in Scripture. You don't have to grow up in church to have heard of that story. David, the shepherd boy, killing the giant Goliath. Think of that story. Goliath is the champion of the enemy of God's people. He is defying the armies of the living God and no one dares fight him. He's too big. He's too imposing. He's too powerful. And then this young shepherd boy shows up. He's only there because his older brothers are fighting and he's bringing them food. This young shepherd boy named David finds out what's going on and he says well I'll fight the giant he walks out on the battlefield as the only hope for God's people God's plan of redemption hangs in the balance maybe more accurately it hangs on a stone in a sling we're reading that. We're like, Man, are the lights about to go out? Are the lights about to go out on salvation? And then a stone hits that giant enemy in the head. And David, God's anointed, cuts off the head of the enemy. Now that sounds familiar. Sounds familiar to what? Well, there's a son of David who would come. The promised one. God's anointed. He too would be a shepherd, the shepherd of his people. He too would vanquish the great enemy named Satan, the ancient serpent who is the devil, the one who is called the prince of the power of the air, the great accuser of God's people. This son of David, this anointed one, would crush the head of that ancient serpent, just like God had promised back in the Garden of Eden. He would save his people once and for all. Now, how crazy is it that we would come to a text like David and Goliath and say, hey guys, here's some stuff we can do to slay giants in our lives. Hey guys, here's some stuff that we can do to be more courageous. Here's some stuff that we can do to be like David. You're excited about Abraham. But Abraham rejoiced to see me. The same could be said about David. The same could be said about Moses or any other person who shows up in the pages 
of redemptive history. This is God's show. This is God's movie, and it's a blockbuster, man. It's about His plan. It's about His purposes. It's about the redemption that He would accomplish, namely that He would accomplish through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, when we come to this book and we read it, we come with with our popcorn and our jumbo Coke, right? We're on the edge of our seats and we're saying, look at our God. Look at what our Redeemer is doing. Look at what He has done and has promised to do. And then we let that propel us forward in living life in a fallen world every day, trusting in the promises of God made to us through the Messiah. Look at our God. Look what our Redeemer has done for us. Now we go and we love each other. Now we go and we flee from sin and temptation. Now we go and pursue righteousness because look at Him and what He has done. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This isn't about Abraham. It's about Jesus. And along with Abraham, we look to Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. God in heaven, we we give you praise and we give you thanks. Every person in your word, save one, is fallen just like we are. But that that one man who is not like us has accomplished our salvation. We pray for ourselves that we would trust Christ. We pray that even as we've considered him from your word, that he would be at the front of our minds, that our hearts would be stirred as we consider him and what he has done for us. We pray that by your spirit's work in us that you would continue to make us more like him. That you would transform us and conform us into the image of Christ. We pray now for ourselves as we come to the table to to feed on Christ by faith, to receive his merits and what he has done for us by faith, that you would continue to minister to us. Continue to confirm and establish our faith. Continue to work in us, we pray. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.